Welcome everyone to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast. I'm a networking expert and the author of the upcoming book, No, No Strangers, How to Build Community, One Relationship at a Time. My why is the pursuit of mastery, and the goal of this podcast is to lock arms on a lifelong mission of daily personal growth to become the best version of ourselves. So let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He is one of the most accomplished rock and metal producers of all time. Uh, He's won three Grammy Awards for his work with Peter Gabriel and Tool. He's worked with some of the most iconic artists of all time. Let's see how many I can name off the top of my head. Uh, I Mother Earth, Stained, Rush, The Tea Party, Coheed and Cambria, Stone Sour, on and on, all these incredible artists, Dream Theater. Uh, it's such an honor to sit down with him here today. So welcome to the podcast, David Bottrell. David, how are you? And does it ever happen where someone reads off that resume and you think to yourself, man, that producer has an amazing resume, and then it dawns on you, damn, that's my resume. Well, thanks for having me here, Joel. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate that you uh, got some great Canadian bands in that introduction, like I'm Mother Earth and... Uh, you know, it's not often that uh, in interviews often uh, that Canadian bands get featured like that. So thanks so much for doing that. And I'm happy to be here and answer your questions. You're very welcome. So to to give everyone an idea of, of how we came to be here today talking, uh, I, I've worked at Metalworks for, for seven years, or I haven't been there for a few years, but I was there for seven years. Uh, those that aren't familiar, uh, Metalworks goes back about 40 years as one of the top studios in Canada. And while I was there, I was organizing different events and we would have guest lectures where uh, prominent people in the entertainment industry would come in and, and share some wisdom. And you were able to come in and, uh, and, and, talk and, and offer advice and, and insights for the students. And that's the first time we met. And fast forward, I started this podcast two years ago, and I started with a Mount Rushmore of who my my all-time ideal guest would be. And I've had your name on my list for two years, but I thought, man, I got to build this up to be worthy of David Bottrell. So uh, just a couple episodes ago, I had our mutual friend, Alf Annabellini. So he's now in the super group uh, Envy of None with Alex Lifeson from Rush and also an amazing engineer and producer. And when we're talking, I asked him, I said, hey, you're, the list of artists you've worked with is incredible. Who were you the biggest fan of before working with them in the studio? And he, he named I Mother Earth. He named the Tea Party. Uh, but then right away, he said, but the person I was the biggest fan of was David Bottrell. Uh, so, you know, and then I, I told him, I confessed. I said, I've had him on my list. Someday I'll get the cajones to ask him to be a guest. And Alf said, you know what, David's amazing. I'm, I'm sh- he's a great guy. I'm sure he'd be up for it. And I think the next day, uh, your agent reached out to me and uh, she said, hey, we, we've come across the interview with Alf and uh, David would would love to do it. And here we are. So this this means a lot to me. Yeah, uh, we checked that one out. 
uh, when um, I guess someone put it up there with my name flagged on it. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm really honored to have Alf say that because I think the work that he does is, is really special. So uh, we've done actually worked on a couple of projects recently together. Um, he uh, did some work with this artist Blackbird that I'm working with as well. And uh, of course, the envy of none, they, they sent me a couple of tracks just to just to kind of get my opinion, um, you know, from an outside perspective. So I was happy to, to sort of just help out on a very peripheral level on that one, too. And he uh, he had mentioned I'm a big uh, I'm Mother Earth fan and, and you had done Quicksilver Meat Dream. And I believe he was involved a little bit in, in that project as well as as kind of a fly on the wall uh, yeah. in the studio. Yep, yep, for sure. Uh, that one, and also mixing the uh, blue, green, orange record too. Oh wow! See, I didn't, I, I didn't know that one. Yeah. So, um, so man, we're we're gonna get into as much as we can over the next two hours. You have an insane discography. This is like the soundtrack to my life. So we're gonna we're gonna choose some album, some artist here or there. Uh, we, we'll get to your, the charity Make Music Matter, which I know has a very special place in your heart. It's very important. So I want to save time for that. Uh, let's actually get started in the beginning. So people know David Bottrell, successful, worked with these artists, big producer. But let's go back to the start. You, you weren't born with these incredible ears and all this talent. Uh, so do you, do you have an earliest musical memory, a time when music stood out to you for the maybe for the first time? I think lying in bed listening to transistor radio, um, you know, very quietly in my room and, and, uh, you know, trying not to disturb my parents. Um, I got introduced really to sort of what would be now known as classic rock music by my older brothers and sisters. You know, my brother had a, had a great stereo and he had, you know, Aerosmith records and Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, and I would put them on and listen to them, you know, and be like, kind of scared but kind of excited too at the same time and uh yeah and then you know when i'd go back to to my room all i would have is my little transistor radio so i would record you know like we do used to do cassettes off of the speaker trying to make sure you got it in after the dj and before the dj started talking you know that sort of that sort of early thing and it was it was all kinds of music i mean it was you know pop music from the carpenters or um you know, uh, backed with, you know, into Procol Harum, into, you know, all kinds of these different things that you, you'd, you'd never know, or, you know, even the, the Terry Jacks and Susan Jacks and stuff like that, They're just listening to pop music on the radio. And, and it was always really an important part of my life and, you know, my time spent in my room. How grateful are you now looking back that your brother had such great taste in music? Oh, my brother and my sister, they both, my sister, they, they were members of the Columbia music club. Remember where they would send get you 10, you'd order 10 albums and nine of them would show up incorrect. And, yeah, and basically, yeah. 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 So, I mean, they, they showed me the way for, for music for sure. And did you, did you play any instruments at all as a kid? And if so, yeah. how, how did you uh, gravitate towards those instruments? Well, my dad got a, uh, went down to the local auction in Dundas and picked up an old Gerhard Heinzmann piano. It was an upright. Um, and still to this day, I know it was kind of pokey, but it didn't have that. It had a, it had a great sound to it, actually. It wasn't that kind of, back in that era, there were those low half harp pianos that you would get from Simpson Sears or something like that. And they always had that sort of plunky kind of sound to them. This had like a real kind of barroom upright piano sound you know because it was always kind of out of tune and you know not exactly tack piano but anyway 
he got that uh, piano and I asked to get lessons. They didn't, um, they didn't say, you know, you have to take piano lessons. The piano was just there. And I said, look, you know, my friend across the street was getting piano lessons. It's like, can I, can I get piano lessons too? So I just took a couple of years and then my brother introduced me to, you know, he was a guitar player. So he said, you know, he introduced me to guitar and learned how to play guitar when I was about, you know, 11 or 12 and sort of, you know, none of, none of which I ever, really became virtuoso on. Unfortunately, I would have loved to have been a great musician, but I don't believe that I have the, um, th there's a certain intangible uh, quality to musicians who are really great improvisers or or good interpreters or, or whichever. Um, I don't have that skill, unfortunately. And, and I kind of realized that fairly early on that I would never be an amazing musician, but I always wanted to do something in music anyway. Luckily, I found a niche where I could use my love of music and my kind of understanding of it without having to rely on my very bad chops, of which there are very little. Well, speaking of bad chops, did you end up playing in any bands? Were there some horrible band names? Uh, you know, I never really was in bands per se. We were in garage rehearsal band people you know people you never made but, it to know, the stage never made it really to well a couple of little things but nothing of any any consequence no no i would have loved to i loved playing with music but it's funny uh, my my friend group at the time none of them they were into music none of them were into playing anything and none of them i was the only one who actually played an instrument at all and so nobody was really interested in being in a band they were interested in going to parties where bands were playing but not being not being the entertainment so you're telling me that there will never be videos on YouTube that surface of you playing uh, in a young band? No, not in a young band. Later on in life, I, I, I did a gig with Peter Gabriel a couple of years ago at a, at a, a conference here in Toronto, um, playing bass actually on that one. But uh, nothing, nothing of uh, nothing of substance. No. That's funny. Not a lot of musicians would go from practicing in the garage and then when they make the stages with Peter Gabriel. So that's that's well, you know, I, I ended up learning like instruments as studio you know, stuff. So I learned to be able to play stuff in studio. And if I rehearse enough, I can hack it out, you know, uh, but I, I'm not I'm by no means any kind of special musician. I can I'm functional at best, I'd say. Be before you start to get serious about wanting to become a recording engineer. Was there anything that you wanted to be as a kid when you when you grew up? No, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I went to community college for a while uh, in a just general business program. That really didn't um, uh, appeal to me that much. And so I was kind of, as a, as a kid, uh, lost from a career standpoint. I didn't really know where I wanted to go. And it was the moment that I... Uh, walked into the first recording studio I ever went into that I knew. And if if iPods existed back back when we were kids, when we were sixteen, what what would we find on on your iPod? Oh well, I had Walkmans, so they were around. Um, yeah, I mean, I listened to all kinds of things in, in in you know my early life was again things like Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, um, progressive things like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Um, and then in the eighties got more into, uh, you know, the fix or, um, got into actually really a lot of ska music, specials, the, uh, selector, the beat in Canada known as the English beat, uh, um, things like that. You know, they were, they were exciting music. Um, I was never a huge fan of the pistols particularly, but I loved what they did to kind of up, 
you know, the upheaval, the clash, of course, you know, were great, the jam, uh, things like that. Um, that would have been sort of the, the development. But honestly, early on, my very first single 45 that I ever bought was The Carpenters on Top of the World. That's amazing. So we're we're about to dive super deep into recording engineering. Before we do so, what what were some of the jobs you had before becoming a recording engineer? And is there one horrible job that stands out as the worst amongst mm. all of those? Well, I think there were, I did a lot of things. Uh, I worked at a gas station in high school for years, pumping gas as a part-time job. That was great. Um, the hours were perfect for after school. The people that I worked with, the, uh, the mechanics and the boss, they were great people. Um, so I liked that job. Uh, two that were real clunkers for me. Well, I mean, we would do, we would do sort of part-time work at the steel mill in, in Hamilton, Stelco, we would clean underneath rod mills and do sort of just like picking up spare change on the weekend, that kind of thing. But my worst two, uh, one of which was working for a moving company. I really, really hated that. They, they tended to overwork the young guys like I was at the time. So there was very little sleep and lots of heavy lifting. And I'm not a big person. So uh, I, I credit it for me learning how to lift things properly. So it actually helped for later on in life when I was touring. So lifting flight cases, you learn to do that easily and pack. Actually, I can pack a pack a truck pretty well. So that sort of thing. But uh, I think probably my worst one was I was two nights of a overnight security guard in a in a truck uh, um, parking lot, basically like a, a truck yard. Um, and the first night I did, the guy pointed out that when I was going around to check the back of the trucks, I should grab a big piece of lumber just in case there was somebody back there and uh the second night i spent the entire night in the office and did not leave and never went back so uh, i was the worst night security you could ever hope for did that produce any nightmares of what could happen if you stayed on that job uh no because i didn't stay on that job it was i knew right away it's like yeah i'm not doing this this is this is not my calling when when we're young, we're, we're often told to go to school, get a get a normal job. Was there any fear for you that you wouldn't be able to make a living in the entertainment industry as a producer? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I had great support. So when I was just beginning college, when I was 19, my father died. Um, and so it sort of it, it clouded my perspective for a number of years. Um, so I, I carried on through my college uh, uh, um, program, again, not knowing what I was going to do, but, you know, my mother was saying, look, just finish college, try to, you know, get, get something to fall back on. So I was, okay, I did. Um, and then sadly, a, a great friend of mine at the end of college uh, that I had made during, during my time at college, really interesting character, uh, who um, I really looked up to, ended up having a, a psychological breakdown and killed himself at the end of at the end of the third year, and and that kind of in a strange way sort of woke me back up to be like, look, you're on a path that you're not going to be very happy with for the rest of your life, so you better find something. And even at that time, my my uh, family all said, look, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time in the job that you're doing in life. You better enjoy it at least somewhat. So um, I started looking around of, of what things um, I could do. And my girlfriend at the time uh, said, look, my uncle has a recording studio. She knew I wanted to do something with music. Um, she said, it's got a recording studio down in Hamilton. Why don't you go talk to him? 
see what he has to say. So I went down and ended up doing an internship there. And during that time, there was, you know, it was an unpaid internship like they are very common now. They weren't quite so common back then, but I cut grass in the daytime, washed windows, cleaned houses, did anything I could to make a few bucks and went down to the studio at night. So, so I, I reached out to our mutual friend, Alf, uh, to help me start off this podcast, right? And I forgot to read the quote right off the top. So here are some kind words from Alf Annabellini. Uh, he, this is what he says about David Bottrell. Aside from nonstop amazing productions, which is obvious, his ongoing work with Make Music Matter may actually be the thing I find most admirable. It's not lip service. He puts himself out there and they change lives. Oh, and he's a great guy to hang with. So that's from Alf, just to set the tone for. Oh, that's very kind of Alf. So we're, we're going to dive into the recording engineering now. Uh, where did this love of audio come from? So you mentioned your family was always playing music and, you know, you become a music fan, you get interested in, in um, instruments, but, but where specifically audio? I mean, most music fans don't turn to become an audio engineer creating audio. Well, you know, when I was a little kid, uh, my parents were looking for things that would interest me. And they bought me one of those transistor radio kits with the with the uh, great big soldering gun when it was a big gun. And I put that together. Never worked. Never worked properly. But I had another radio that was working. And uh, in the area that I was growing up in was a was a sort of new development. There were all kinds of um, uh, new uh, like telephone cables being put in. And there were a couple of these uh, rolls of them that were just left by the phone company on the, uh, in one of the properties and it had all these wires in it. So I got these wires and I took them home and managed to get, I don't know where, I don't even know where I got them, but all these tiny little, little, little drivers, you know, and I thought this is great. And I put them all around my room and I attached them up with this telephone wire that came all coming from my transistor radio. So I, so I made myself a very, a very mono, but surround sound little mini driver thing all around my room. And it was, it was so much fun to listen to music in there. It was all in mono. I'm sure the phase relationship was terrible and everything, but it was a blast for me when I was a kid. So I don't know if that led me onto a path of, of engineering because it would, it was the worst possible signal path ever. And huge load on the whole thing. Anyway, um, it was a lot of fun to do. And then when I found myself going into recording studios and, and knowing that I really wasn't the greatest musician, I thought, well, look, you know, you want something to do with music. Here's an area where you have some sort of mild aptitude or potentially an aptitude towards, and you can learn from these people, these engineers that are doing things. You can learn how to run a console. You can learn how to, what microphones are doing and, that's a way you can have something to do with the music industry um, without, without failing because of your, your lack of actual musical playing ability. And do you remember your first time being in a recording studio where you were actually working, whether it was as an assistant or an engineer? Can you remember the, the, the first time? Uh, I think, get, probably, ha, ha, be, well, I, I was going to say getting paid, but you don't always get paid as, you know, as yeah. the, the runner or the, you know. I think one of probably one of my earlier sessions actually um, was uh, with the band Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet. Um, we were I was working at Grand Avenue Studios in Hamilton and they came in. This was, I think, their first or second recording that they'd done. And it was being produced by a guy called Coyote Shivers. 
and uh good name he, good he, yeah 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 he's he's uh he's in los angeles now um but uh uh, anyway, uh, he brought in this session of these guys and it was all instrumental and we set them up and started recording and it was it was really exciting because the band was kicking ass and, you know, it was primarily instrumental, you know, kind of that, that sort of vibe. Anyway, it was a great time. So it was a great sort of first session where, you know, I was able to uh, you know, sort of learn uh, as I was going along, but still get something kind of exciting at, at the same time. And how early on did you realize that you had a, a skill that you had a, a, a something of value to offer that that people could use people would would demand their you know and um that this was something that you actually wanted to do as a career i think it generally came from the musicians that i had worked with they, they'd be um uh really um grateful for the work that i had done and and excited by the sound of of what we came up with in the studio i remember uh um there was this saxophone player called i think ron anderson i think was his name um i could that could be wrong about that it was very early on in my career he was sort of in that same that sort of jazz group uh, era in toronto in the very early 80s um great player kind of a, a like a at one point a very avant-garde style of, of, of sax playing anyway um we were working in the studio i was recording him and and uh, on something and anyway he he uh um he said something that was really nice he said uh that what i had done to his sax to give him a, a, something to play around with from a, a treatment or a, an engineering standpoint he said it was it was really sort of innovative and that, you know, I had, I told him that I had some other opportunities to go to. And he said, well, you know, if you ever leave Canada, the, they'll be missing a great engineer. And so uh, I thought that was a really nice thing to say. And I think oh, maybe I, maybe I'm not getting I'm not too bad at this. Can can you share what your journey looked like as a recording engineer from those early days leading up to um, the work with Peter Gabriel? So I know that's a big span of time at your changing countries. Uh, could you maybe guide us through what that looks like? Well, I started at the studio in 83. Uh, and, you know, as an engine, as a, as an assistant, I mean, as a T-boy really to start with, um, uh, it was, uh, you know, cleaning toilets, making tea, you know, setting up microphones, learning from the engineers and even, uh, you know, working on jingle sessions, you know, helping out, helping out some recording there or some late night mixing for, for jingle sessions, that kind of thing. Uh, and then, you know, bands would come in that Dan Lanois was producing because it was his studio. Um, uh, it would have been uh, Martha and the Muffins uh, for, for one, Luba, um, Kowalchuk, the, the um, Secrets and Sins album that he did there. Um, so, you know, sort of working on projects like that, um, uh, Parachute Club, uh, you know, sort of being an assistant and then then getting work with things like Shadowy Man or this band called Altogether Morris that uh, was a young band in the Hamilton area and and just, you know, kind of picking up some skills and working at it. And uh, and then, you know, at one point, uh, the Lanois sold the studio to Bob Doidge and uh, Dan went over to work with U2 in Ireland and subsequently Peter Gabriel in England. And he called me up and said, look, I might need somebody to help me out here just as an assistant, more of a personal assistant to him. And I thought to myself, well, sure, I could do that. But, you know, the moment I'm anywhere near a recording studio, I'm going in and I'm not coming out. Right. So uh, um, basically, I was he asked, you know, would I come over to help with Peter Gabriel for a few weeks? 
And I said, yeah, sure. And I got on a plane. It turned out that uh, the guy who was sort of the studio assistant at the time was not really interested in being a studio assistant. He was more of a live, uh, live guy, um, more of a stage manager, you know, production manager kind of person. And he's, and I said, well, look, you know, I can take over that sort of job. And he was like, yeah, go for it. You do, do what you want. So I became the assistant on those sessions and worked with the engineer who was Kevin Killen. And that was for the So album. So we were supposed to be there for a couple of weeks and it turned out to be about six months to finish that record. Um, and then at the end of it, Dan, uh, well, we were, we were then planning on going and doing a record with the psychedelic furs um, and, uh, but they didn't have any really fully songs, uh, songs fully written. And so Dan said, well, call me when you get the songs written and we'll maybe do something. His, uh, his idea then was, well, I'll go back to Canada and see, see what he can find. And he said, if you want to come back to Canada with me, I'll find you some work or you, we can do stuff or you're here in England already. Why don't you see, you know, when you stay here, there, there was another month left on the apartment we were renting in London. Why don't you stay here? Or, or you know, if you want stay here and see what you can find. So I ended up doing that. Um, went back down to see if there was anything to, to be had at the studio in Bath with Peter. And there was all, all kinds of work to do, tape store, preparation for the tour, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, it just transpired that I ended up going back and, and ended up working for Peter and stayed there for about nine, another nine years working for him and essentially 20 in England uh, once I moved up back up to London from Bath. Um, so yeah, sort of in, in a fairly long-winded answer, but that was sort of the path up to at least England. It's crazy to know how one decision can just change the tra trajectory of your life. I mean, you go to the UK, you don't realize you're gone for two decades, right? When you first go. I think life is like that in general. I mean, where we are sitting right now is the product of all of the decisions we've made in life. What so for our, our our listeners, some of them aren't as musical as others. What would you say to you are are the roles of a of a producer in the studio? A producer does many things. Um, it can be everything from uh, sort of compositional assessment uh, to performance assessment, but it can also be confidence assessment and confidence building. Um, some producers have a technique of, of tearing down the confidence of an artist to build them back up in their own image. I try to take the, the, the essence of what a musician is and try to um, bring the most out of them of who they are. Um, I will suggest uh, compositional ideas. I'll, I'll suggest sonic ideas or musical approaches. Um, and I'll assess the performances of those approaches. So it's multifaceted, but you do, as a producer, I think you have to fit yourself, you have to mold yourself into the position that's needed for whichever project that you're doing. Sometimes it's sitting back and really not saying much at all. Um, during the last album I did with Mastodon, for example, um, when I was working with the, the, the drummer and the, the bass player and one of the guitar players, it was involved and I'd have suggestions and I'd have, um, you know, things to say about performance or whatever. But in working with one of the other guitarists, it was more just like sit back and, and be a cheerleader and say, yep, sounds great, man. Keep her going. You're doing great. You know, um, you have to be flexible, I think, as a producer, at least the way the way that my personality works best is when I'm when I'm flexible and when I'm uh, encouraging of, a, of an artist to create the best that they can do with the tools that were given at, at the time. Uh, 
So we're going to dive into the Peter Gabriel stuff a little bit. Before that, I have uh, another quote that's sent in here. And this, this is from uh, Rich Badeau. So this is the drummer for Finger Eleven and Saint Asanya. Sure, so this is a, a little bit of a longer quote, but uh, all the entire quote needs to be read. So here it goes. David is a true master at his craft. The list of artists that he's worked with is staggering. Every band I know, when the what producer do you want to work with question comes up, David is always on the list. Although I haven't had the honor yet myself, that's yet, all of my records were done, all of my favorite records were done by him. Not only will he get you the best tones of your career, but you'll get the best perspective and ideas to make your songs the strongest they can be. Then he will get that perfect take to make you leave the studio a better musician than when you walked in. I know this all to be true from many, many artists. Also, there's this. When I was at my lowest in between gigs and not doing my best, David met up with me in Toronto and hung out and chatted about music. He may or may not have known I wasn't doing well. My guess, having the instinct that he has, is he did and was showing encouragement and support. Either way, it didn't matter. It helped me. David is a legend with a humble and kind soul and one hell of an ear. So that's from Rich Badeau. Wow, that's very kind. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled by that. Um, I remember us hanging out and um, I did know that he was probably not at the top of his game at the time. Um, and, you know, I think in those situations, yeah, you can offer words of encouragement and, and you know, just be there even if, if nothing else, um, just to listen. Uh, often that's that's the best thing a producer can do is listen and um, you know offer words of encouragement. So with, with Peter Gabriel, uh, you worked on So in 86, Passion in 89, Shaking the Tree in 90, Us in 92. And it looked like your role and your responsibility kept getting bigger as the albums went on. So with So, uh, you engineered, then with Passion, you engineered and mixed. Uh, and then you produce shaking the tree. Did you feel like your skills were developing and that, you know, Peter Gabriel and the crew were, were starting to trust you more and more with more responsibility? Yeah, I think uh, I need to, to correct one thing, though, Joel. Uh, the engineer on So Album was Kevin Killen. I did okay. some additional engineering on that and I assisted for most of that project or probably about two thirds of that project. So uh, I, I can't let that one go. Kevin was the engineer. And you, he's a and you shouldn't, engineer. so that's good. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he's a fantastic engineer and a great friend. Um, uh, when it came to the passion, that's that's kind of the one that I'm most proud of in the work that I've done with Peter. I think the Us album also I'm very proud of, but I think that um, the, the the passion record for me was, was something that it was such an amazing uh, learning experience um, just from a musical standpoint I was introduced through Peter and through making that that soundtrack um, to musical styles uh, that then later turned into work with real world records um, uh, that that I would have never really gotten uh, as as broad and as and as focused um, uh, an introduction to all that music so Yes, over the time, of course, you know, as you get more experience, you know, Peter trusts you more to do different things. Um, you know, we developed a, a great relationship over those nine years. And the more and more work that we did together, the, the more um, responsibilities I was given. So uh, until the point when we got to the end of, of us, 
And I felt at that point, I'd kind of uh, gone as far as I could with that relationship and in that position. And it was, it was time for me to sort of branch out on my own. So uh, that's why the, the relationship ended in that natural way at the end of a project. I didn't want to do any more touring. Um, Peter wanted me to come out and tour and do some, do the live sound for the, the, the whole thing. And I was just not comfortable with that. I'm not a great live sound person. So I felt it was that time where, okay, I, I'm, 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 I'm ready to move on. What would you say are the different skills needed between live audio and, and studio audio? I guess live is more of a chaotic environment where things change on the fly. Yeah, I think I think for I think for live sound for me anyway, I, I think a short memory would be a useful skill because I I'm quite a I don't know if perfectionist is the right word, but I love studio work because you're able to craft something into uh, into, into the way that you eventually your vision tells you it should go in. And with live, I always found that I was, and this is probably mostly because of my lack of skill in it, but I was never satisfied with any of the live um, uh, sound that I had ever worked on. And so I didn't want to have a, a time of being frustrated all the time. So I think that live, live engineers are amazing um, at crafting for the live scenario. Uh, you're, you're forced into the situation of different venues. And at the time, there wasn't the, the digital consoles we have now, which have sort of instantaneous recall song by song. You know, it's, it's much more um, uh, the, the early preparation, I think, is, is key in that work now. And people are able to do that. And then going out and doing the show, it's, it's fine tuning and fine tweaking. Maybe nowadays doing live sound would be okay. But at the time with analog consoles and to, and to try to fix it, you know, those sort of problems every night, I, I would have been very frustrated to do that. And I admire deeply the work that those people do. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that they're the, from a studio standpoint, you're able to, you know, go for take two, go for take three, you know, refine the sound, move the microphone a little bit because it's just not picking up enough of the cone or, you know, those sorts of things. That's studio work. You can do that um, live. It's, it's not quite so easy. It's like every night, every night's a different thing and every night's a, um, you know, a new adventure. Um, but uh, I think, I think I probably don't, uh, I'm not patient enough to do that kind of work. Hmm. So the the Peter Gabriel <clears throat> album So comes out in 1986. It's a huge uh, critical success, a huge commercial success, five times platinum in the US, all these hit singles. Um, it, it shows up on the list of greatest albums of all time. How important was that album to your early to your early bio? Um, I, I'm sure that opened just a, a ton of doors. Um, yes and no. I think that um from a, from a career standpoint, it's certainly a good thing to have on your resume, without a doubt. But for me, what I gained was the education um, of, of, you know, the recording education from Kevin and from Dan. Uh, the, those, uh, <clears throat> obviously, yes, having it as, a, um, as part of the, the, the bio that you have, no question, it, it's, it's a plus. Um, but I did go... Uh, fairly soon after that to Los Angeles to kind of see what, you know, if anybody would take my meeting. And I didn't find that it was as 
um, as much of an asset as I thought. It was an asset for sure, but there was still, I was pretty young. So there's still like, okay, what else you got? You know, so it was only after a few more successes of things like that, where people like, okay, he's the real deal. I guess because you were, you were assisting more on, on that album. It's once sure. you got to engineering, mixing and producing the Peter Gabriel albums, maybe that's where the Peter Gabriel name really sure. stood out. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the work that I primarily did uh, on those for sure were yet another, just, I mean, the, the great thing, if, if you, if you have a resume that starts with a project and then you continue to do other work with that respect in an artist, then that will obviously, um, uh, show that that person who is that respected respects you. So that, that way uh, you're, you're able to prove that, yeah, I, I did just this one project, but then I did these three others and I wouldn't have done those three others if that person hadn't thought I was worthy. I guess that's the equivalent of a normal resume where it shows you worked at the same place for five years. That looks better than someone that's hopping around all the time. So sure. I've never, never thought of it that way, but sure. uh I have another quote here, and this is uh, sent in from someone you know, and they actually talk about the So album from Peter Gabriel. So this is from a Grammy-nominated producer, Dan Broadbeck. So worked with the Cranberries and the Salads. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was 18 and I took audio engineering in London, he came in as a guest lecturer for my class. That's how I know him. So um, this is what Dan Broadbeck says. We've only met once at a dinner in LA in 2020, but we have many mutual friends and I've mixed something for his Make Music Matter initiative. He's worked with a grad of mine, Darren McGill, a lot, and he speaks very highly of him. Funny story. At that dinner two years ago, Garth Richardson, who's also an amazing producer, uh, was there at the end of the meal. Garth, who is a very good friend, asked for two Desert Island albums, and one was So by Peter Gabriel, and David engineered that. I'm not one to be a fanboy, so I didn't say anything to him about it, but it was quite cool. It was our last night at the NAMM show, and I was staying through the next week because of the Grammy nomination with the Cranberries. I have mad respect for David and the work that he's done. So that's Dan Broadbeck. Mm, thank you, Dan. That's very kind. You made one of his favorite uh, I, albums of all time, but he, uh, he, well, he was I, too shy to say it. I worked partly you on it. Yeah, on no, Dan and I, that was, that was a lot of fun that dinner. That was uh, um, at the at the NAMM show. In fact, I think uh, actually when we got back, my my engineer and I, Ryan Cambridge, we we went there. We came back. We both got very sick coming back from that, and uh, we there was no uh, real information on COVID other than you know messages that this thing was coming over from China. But um, we believe that uh, that it's quite possible that we had one of the first. Uh, cases um, in you know fr coming from Nam. You know, you go to Nam, you always catch something, but this was this was particularly bad. So I don't know if we caught it at that dinner or or somewhere else, but yeah. As we as we move down through your discography, so you move on to working with King Crimson. So the album Vroom in '94 and Thrack in '95. What was it like working with these prog rock legends? Oh, well, it was fantastic. Uh, obviously, Tony Levin, I had worked with before, and uh, even Trey Gunn, I had worked with because we did that um, David Sylvie and Robert Fripp project uh, the first day. Um, so I had worked with a couple of them already, uh, including Robert. Um, I found, you know, it was a it was sort of natural progression from that. Uh, 
yeah, uh, working with these guys was really exciting. Um, we did, it was such a funny uh, uh, introduction to Bill Bruford because uh, we sat, uh, I set up in a studio um, in uh, Woodstock, New York. Uh, and it was this small studio that we were kind of um, using uh, more than the studio was really capable of. Uh, and so we kind of got in extra tape machines and extra consoles in order to do this because the way they were setting up was as a dual trio. It was two drummers, two bass instrument players, stick and bass, and two guitar players. So I had to have enough inputs for two full drum kits. And, you know, the, the drum kits that they had weren't small drum kits, so they were always quite big. So, but we were recording the first version. We kind of got set up, and this is the first, first time I had recorded them. And... Uh, we ran through a version of Thrack, right? And so we got it all, you know, we, we played it down one time. It's the first time I've heard this song. And I don't know if you know the song, it's quite involved. There's sort of a thematic thing at the beginning, an improv section in the middle, and then the theme at the end. Again, this is the first time I've ever heard this thing. So they come back in after the performance, and this is like a seven, eight minute piece of music, and we play through it. So this is this playthrough is the second time I've heard this song. So we, we're, you know, we finished the, the record or finished the thing. And, um, and Bruford turns to me, he goes, oh, okay, great. Um, but, you know, I kind of messed up here at the end theme here. Can from, from bar, I don't remember the number X to bar Y, can you drop me in and drop me out of this? Now this is a drop in on analog tape of drums in and out, which is an extraordinarily difficult thing to wow. do and get right in a piece that's, let's put it this way, three different musicians are playing in three different time signatures. So trying to count what is one on any given bar. Anyway, in the process of this, I turn around and Trey and Tony are just howling with laughter because they know this is the second time I've heard this intricate piece of music and Bill's asking me to drop him out in very specific places. Anyway, I said, yes, Bill, I can but I'm going to have to learn this to count it. So, you know, let me play me through, show me where, show me where. And he did. And we did it. And I managed to get it in and out. I was pretty good at punching, but it was just, I got to count. You got to learn to count. What are you in? I'm in 15. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, in, one, two, three, out. And, and he was happy with it. Now this was actually meant to be like a sort of pre-production precursor to the album of Thrack that we did, but it was still, a, you know, I wanted to make sure we got it right. So it was a, it was a, it was an exciting, um, stressful, uh, you know, potentially non-panic situation. We got it done in one punch, but uh, yeah, it was, it was very funny. I know Trey and Bill, uh, Trey, Trey and, and Tony thought it was the most hilarious thing they'd ever seen. I'm, a, I'm a Pro Tools baby, so just hearing you having to, to pull that off is, is that's, that's like a, that's a nightmare to me. I mean, that sounds I mean, almost, think, that sounds impossible. Think symbols, right? If there are any symbols, you're dropping out in the middle of symbols. How to get that without it sounding weird? I had the I had the um, of forgiving nature of two drum kits, so there was cover up, but the punch was pretty good, as I recall, and 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 worked. So, so when you have two different trios, you have you have drums, bass, guitar, times two. What challenges did that pose in the the mixing of the album? Well, it was it was difficult because you 
you had to fit things around like anything sonically you've got to fit around now the great thing was they would work out their parts so that they would interweave right and and playing in different signatures meant that you were able to fit things in and around but often panning was very useful i mean during one of the songs it was like hard left hard right with the th- with the three trios because it's like get it out of it get it out of the way but yeah i mean it was a challenge a fun challenge. I mean, the problem, one of the problems that, that I did have was between the two drummers, um, they neither of them wanted to be the small drummer, right? They wanted the, they both wanted the big drum sound. Well, it's not easy to fit, you know, both big drum sounds. Somebody's got to be, somebody's got to be the rhythm and somebody's got to be the melody in, in, in the rhythm part. So it's like, Bill, you're playing more rhythmic parts and I'll get you as big as I can, but I can't make it as big as, as, you know, big thumping Pat Mastelotto, which was huge kind of sounds like let's try and find some common ground here. So. So you, you prefer to work with music that has um, um, strong identity, uh, lots of originality. You you've said that genre isn't that important. Where did this kind of ethos come from that, that you've lived by with the artists you've worked over your career? Well, I think just because I'm a music fan of all different things, right? I, I love lots of different styles of music. So for me, it, it's really the integrity of the composition, integrity of the artist and the performance that, that matters, not, not whether it's, you know, rock or metal or progressive or singer-songwriter or atmospheric or ambient or whatever, as long as the, as long as the intention is there and as long as the, the integrity of the performance and the composition is there, I'm, I'm happy. So your your work with King Crimson, rumor has it, that's what led to your work with Tool. That that Tool was a fan of your work with King Crimson. Is that is that accurate? Uh, partially, yeah. Danny uh, Carey was a big King Crimson fan, so he loved the work that I had done on Vroom and Thrack. Um, Adam was a big fan of the first day album that I did with uh, David Sylvian and Robert Fripp. Um, Maynard was very enamored actually more by the world music stuff that I had done uh, than the Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan um, music the, that we did with um, uh, real world records, things like that. And, you know, the passion soundtrack. Um, and uh, I think Justin being new to the band, he just, you know, heard the discography and thought, yeah, this guy gets great sounds. So, you know, it, it was, it was sort of threefold, but King Crimson certainly played a large part in why Tool wanted to work with me. So that led to working on three different Tool albums. So I always have trouble pronouncing the album names, but uh, Onima, is that how you, Onima? That's how how Maynard says it. He's the writer. So it's Onima for him. I've been saying Anima before. So Onima in 1996, uh, is it Salival or Salival? Salival. Salival 1999 and Lateralis, I can actually say 2001. Lateralis. Um, Ah, jeez. Tool never makes it easy. They don't. They don't make lateralis. They don't. Lateralis. That's again, that's the way Maynard says it. So he wrote the words. Well, now we have we have in recorded history, we now know how to say the three the three album names. So at at least that's what it was at the time. It may have changed now. You never know a tool. Yeah. Man, I'm I'm a I'm a huge fan. Anima is in my top 10 albums of all time. Uh these albums are iconic. These are genre defining. These are some of the most critically acclaimed. Uh, Rolling Stone has has uh, Anima as the 17th greatest metal album of all time. When when you're recording this album in 1996, 
do you know that you, you have something special here that could change things? Yes, of course. You always know. No, of course you don't. <laughs> it's, it's look, you know, again, I go into these things uh, when we sat in the rehearsal for tool uh, it was, uh, they brought me over said, cause the, the, I don't know if you know this story, but when they called uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't think, they had the right guy. I, I thought that they were thinking of somebody else because I'd never done like an LA metal band at all. Um, and so I thought, well, they probably, they, they probably think I'm somebody else. So I told my manager at the time, I said, you know, don't, don't really pursue it that hard because, you know, I, I loved the, the undertow record. I thought it was great, but it wasn't anything that I had any experience with. So I thought, well, you know, don't, but they called back in a week and said, no, 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 we know who he is. And we, we really want him to, to hear our music, you know, our new stuff. Can he come over to Los Angeles? So I went over and I sat down beside Danny, which was a foolish move because it's very loud. Um, and listened to, they played through the whole album. And at, when it came to the end, I was like, yeah, that's great. You know, I, I love it. Um, I'd love to work on it with you, but why me? And they all explained the, that, that thing. They said, look, we want to make something that's not just going to sound like every other Los Angeles metal record out there. We want something unique. They said, we know, we know what we want from the metal world of sounds and what we can get. What we want you for is your perspective on all other kinds of things and bringing that to our music and sonically bringing that so that we can make something unique. And um, so when we were making that album, I brought my sonic sensibility, musical sensibility to it, the, the, married it up with theirs. And we came up with something that uh, was unique to, to the sound of, of metal in, in uh, you know, music in, in, from, from the West Coast styles. So we, you know, we didn't know that we had something special, but I knew, I knew that from the work ethic and from the, uh, the ability and musicianship, of the players that were there that we were making something special for sure. I often think that of records that I work on some hit and some don't. Um, but, you know, I usually try to get involved in records where I know that the people are really talented and, and are, are great writers and great players. So that album won you the, your second Grammy award, the first one being with Peter Gabriel for, for the album passion, uh, man, most people will never, get a Grammy nomination in, in their life. You've won three Grammys, two up to this point in the discography. What is it like winning a Grammy and, and what do those awards mean to you? Uh, you know, they're very special. Um, I, I find it kind of funny that I feel like I have uh, ones from opposite ends of the spectrum because the Tool ones are obviously for best metal performance and the Peter Gabriel one is best new age performance. So it's kind of... That might be one, the widest side, gap the, in Grammy exactly, win history. Exactly. But you know what? I, I, what I love about that is I think it speaks to the breadth of my catalog and the idea that I'm not, uh, I don't work on one style of music. I work on many. And so having um, recognition from both of those things I feel is important. So I'm very grateful for those things. Um, you know, been uh, we, we were nominated for one with the um, Godsmack record as well. And, and just recently the Macedon record got a nomination as well. Um, uh, didn't win those ones, but it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's very cliche to say, but it is nice to be nominated. It's nice, it's nice to be recognized by your peers as, as being, um, uh, you know, as, as having value. I mean, I can tell you a story about uh, meeting up with Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. You know, I grew up, uh, I grew up as a kid listening to Led Zeppelin 
And um, uh, after I did the first, the Anima record, um, the Page and Plant was about to do their first sort of record together. And um, they gave me a call, their manager gave my manager a call and said, would you come for a meeting with these guys? Well, of course I was shitting bricks because they were musical heroes as a kid. So I go in, I'm, I'm, I'm living in this little apartment in, in Bath and I go up to, um, I'm actually working on a project at another studio near London. So I go over and I'm sitting in Bill Kirbishley's office, who was their manager at the time. And I'm, I'm sitting on a sofa that's bigger than my apartment, you know, kind of perched on the end and they're listening to the to the out to the tool album we're playing it and robert's kind of walking around and you know listening to the music and saying well the vocals are a little quiet and because you know in tool it's like it's more about the whole bound anyway um jimmy's not saying very much but i'm 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 in awe of these guys of course because i've actually met robert years before that in bath he was down in bath beside the point i'm sitting in a professional situation with two of my musical idols and this is you know i'm i'm, well, I'm two of the greatest myself, of all time you know and and i'm just i'm i'm terrified and thrilled at the same time so the meeting ends we decide maybe we'll do something together it doesn't go any really further than that um and I'm leaving the office. And as I'm walking out, Doug, uh, a guy called Doug Boyle, who's a, a guitar player, happens to be in the same office. And I've worked with him. It's like, hey, Doug, how you doing? We stop, we chat for a second. Then out of the, the Kerbersley's office comes Jimmy Page, kind of sort of jogging out. He's like, hey, Dave, can you wait a second? You know, I'm like, yeah, because he was, wasn't saying very much. But he he came up to me after he said, look, I didn't get much of a chance to speak uh, during that meeting. Uh, I just wanted to tell you that I thought the music that you played me was really great. I thought, I thought it was really great work that you did. And man, that was like a month of me walking on clouds because a musical idol of mine had said to me, I think your work is really good. And that was as affirming to me as anything I've ever had in my career. So um, I, I don't, I can't remember exactly what your first, oh, uh, so so getting the Grammy nominations as well are, are a same sort of affirmation. I know it's sort of like it's self-congratulatory in the industry. Pat yourself on the back. Aren't we great? We all got Grammys. But it is a recognition amongst your peers that that your work is valuable. And, and so I'm 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 am honored to get those things. Do you do you keep those Grammys somewhere special? The uh, I have uh, yeah the things up at the cottage uh, up at my cottage and, and it's I don't put them up in my regular thing to look at or or, or publicly display them that much. Um, it's just not in my nature to to be showy. I've got a few records up in my studio here, not too many, just because studios kind of should have those. But I mean, I've got Peter's the So album because it was my first platinum one. So yes, I'm very proud of that. I've got some silver chair stuff up and Tool stuff, but again, not very many, just a, a few here and there. Just is is Tool the band that you get asked the most about, and are you tired of Tool questions or? Um, does it have a special place in your heart that the world just loves something you worked on so much? Yeah, it's certainly the, what I get asked about most. Um, but again, I'm very proud of the work that I've done. And, you know, not everybody listens to every podcast and every story that I tell. So, you know, I'm happy to answer questions to a certain degree. I mean, you know, the, it's I, I prefer the good questions like, you know, a question like what's so and so like to work with isn't really a, an interesting question. You know, hmm. so, you know, it's, it's not, it's not something that you can really chew on as an answer. It's like, they're great to work with. The, the, the tool albums have lots of instrumental 
tracks. Some, some are musical, some aren't musical. It's more sounds. I'm curious where, where those come from. Are, are they there to um, evoke a certain emotion uh, more than anything? Are they there to help um, create kind of the vision that the band has for the album sonically? I, I'm just in, really intrigued by the interludes. And I know it's, you know, all the Tool fans are curious about how things fall into place with the band and with the album. So, I think the interludes are there from the band perspective, and I can't speak for the band, of course, but, you know, they want the album to flow in a certain way. And sometimes if they want, if you want to have song A coming after song B, uh, uh, they, they, they might not work very well as a transition. So having something in there leaves the album in its order that you want to tell the, st the story while making a little musical bridge in there between the two so that you, you, the album will still have a flow, even if two songs that, that might not work well directly together because of key or because of a jarring nature or stylistic differences, you can have a, a bridging little interlude that sort of does a palate cleaning and then you're on to the next thing. That's, that's my guess with it. Um, again, can't speak for the band. They might have different reasons. When, when I listen to Tool albums, I frequently find myself trying to count the time signatures. And mm -hmm. I, I frequently think if I was the engineer, the producer, uh, how much a nightmare it would be to try to program the click track. And you've mentioned before that they don't use a click track. Is Danny Carey a human metronome? What's going on here? The band worked together and create the tempo together. Yes, Danny sets sets it, but they, they work together. They move together. They're, they're one of the few bands that I've ever recorded that really do. Like they rehearse together so much and work together so much that they they move the tempos themselves. And if I ever need a click, then it's that's programmed afterwards, not before. You don't do, they don't do tempo maps. They do their own. And honestly, they're, they're one of the few that as a producer, I'll say, yeah, sure, we can do that. With other bands, I mean, they just, uh, the, the skill level of tool is really beyond most that I've ever worked with. So they're able to, to cover that. A lot of bands think they can, but can't. So, you know, um, I'm all for trying, but it's not, it's not like the feel of bands, uh, somebody like tool, they can create the emotion and the, and the feel of it with their tempo. But they move together. Like I will, have, I will have done. I remember one time with a with a uh, uh, a session with Tool that I was doing. We were doing one song, and there was quite a long break between the end of the drums and the starting of the next section. And I and I said, oh well, I'll I'll, I'll work on programming a click for that for Adam to do a you know to come in with the guitar. And he's like, no, don't. I'm okay. And it was long. It was it was probably a good three bars, three or four bars of break. And bang, he came in right on. Like he just knew that, you know, that, that, but you can't do that with everybody. There's so few people that can actually cover that. That band can. Yeah. Every musician in that band are world-class at their instruments. No question. It's, it's incredible. No uh, so I've heard you mention in interviews before that Adam is, uh, kind of a genius when it comes to guitar tones like he's he's very much a perfectionist in getting the right guitar tone can you elaborate a little bit on what it's like with him finding those sounds yeah it's great he's he's uh see he has um it's not really what he does from pedal bass see i think i respect him as a guitar player um as much or more than any other guitar player that i've worked with um 
because his attention to the detail of his pick work, his, his tonal work on his instruments themselves, like he will have, he will have uh, the way he gets like lesser driven tones is just usually like turning the volume of the guitar down. So he will, he will audition 10 potentiometer volume controls in his guitar before he'll select the one that he wants to use because it's there's a real feel to what he does with that and his pick strokes and his angle and his, his hand position and the way he hits and wear on the string the, the the precision that he does that with in order to get exactly the right tone that he wants like he works on that and it's not it's not about shredding it's not about a million notes a second it's just the the the, the unbelievable technique that he's developed over over his many years of playing that gets his tone that no one else gets that no one else gets the consistency of that tone and the 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 just the amount of i don't know it's 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 the precision and clarity of his tone it is comes out of his fingers it comes out of his fingers and you know to a certain degree the 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 technology but it's only like he's selecting the right technology for the way that he plays so that's the the kind of respect i have for him and his ability and his, his attention to that kind of detail. Can you remember the first time you heard the iconic bass riff from schism? Yeah, it was in rehearsal. Yeah. And it was like, this is cool. Okay. And like you, I was like, how do I count this? Okay. And I figure out the count. It's like, Oh yeah. Oh, that's cool. And it was, yeah, it was very much, I mean, the lyrics weren't written yet uh, fully at least. So I didn't really hear the lyrics. I just heard the instrumental track, but I thought, yeah, that, that's cool. I didn't know that. It's funny. I wouldn't have picked that necessarily as a first single necessarily. Of, and I thought it was an odd choice, but it's like, okay, you know, you guys know more than me. It turns um, out that someone knew what they were doing, right? Of course. Yeah, no, I was a song, massive of, album. Of course. No, I oh, know the album. I thought the album, see, here's my, my thinking about the difference between those two albums, both of which I'm hugely proud of and think are, are equally great. I just thought that the Onima record was more of a collection of great songs. And the Lateralis was a, just a great big piece of, of amazing work. On, like as a, I know it's a bunch of songs, but it's, it's more of a mood of the whole thing than Onima. Onima is a collection of amazing songwriting and amazing performance and song and individual songs put, it, put together as an album. Whereas Lateralis is kind of like, it's, it's one of those ones you can't really portion off one song or another. It's just, it is what it is. It's a thing. Yeah, man, Tool has maybe the the most diehard fan base on, on the planet. It's like what other band can go, you know, 13 years between albums and still be number one in They'd arena shows. One. And it's it's crazy, but um, they're an enigma, that band, for sure. Yeah, there is a blueprint that nobody can can copy for sure. And so within the, the hardcore fan base, there's so much kind of lore and myths and stories surrounding tool no one knows what's true what's not but it, it it's all a part of what is tool uh what is the image of tool so one of the biggest things of lore uh in, in tool in the tool fandom is the the fibonacci sequence in the song lateralis hopefully i said that right this time uh, was that something actively discussed in the studio or it's something that just comes out afterwards and maybe people are looking too far into it. I've heard, I've heard Maynard uh, talk a bit, talk about it a little bit uh, before, but. Yeah. Um, he developed that uh, lyrical rhythm 
to the song based upon the Fibonacci sequence. Yeah. So we discussed that and he said, I, I knew what the Fibonacci sequence was before. Um, and he said, I I'm writing a lyric with this rhythm, you know, based upon this rhythm. And because, because the way that the rhythm of the song went, it fit, it managed to fit perfectly with the changes in the song and how we wanted to write it. So yeah, it was, it's definitely that, that's, that's as far as that goes, I believe. Um, I, the, I've heard stories of the whole album being based upon the Fibonacci sequence. I never heard that uh, myself. Maybe they did, but if they did, that wasn't discussed, but the lyric of that and lyric and the, and the, the um, phrasing of that song was, was at least in part based on the Fibonacci sequence. The, the song Ticks and Leeches is considered one of the greatest recorded drum performances of all time. It shows up on all these lists uh, for, oh, okay. for drumming. Uh, how much fun was it to record those drums? I mean, it's fun to record all of Danny. He's just such an amazing drummer. I think he's, you know, in, in a lot of ways, he's the best drummer I've ever, I've ever worked with. I mean, Manu Kache as well is a, is a great drummer. Obviously, Bill Bruford and Pat Mastelotto are great drummers. Danny, for some reason, just has this unique ability to be lyrical and, you know, groove like crazy and the parts he writes and and his precision with it and the way he hits and the consistency with his parts and consistency with what it's done is he's he's you know one of those special musicians that you only get a few chances in life to work with and i'm i'm very grateful for the the time that we did get to work so ticks and leeches was just another performance in all of that i don't separate them out that oh that track was really great to record or this track they all were you know, he was such a, he's such a special musician. It's, it's great to record special musicians. Sometimes when you see a movie where there's things that happen with, with animals at the end, it says no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. I'm curious uh, if any drum, how many drum kits were harmed in the making of tool albums? Are there just you, punctured skins all over the place? No, you see, this is the, this is a misconception. D Danny doesn't break drums. Danny, Danny, I think more, like massages drums and and gets the tone because it's, it's not all about how hard sure when he needs to hit hard he hits hard but it's not like we were changing drum heads for every take right he he would he would he 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 can play loud he can play soft he's not it's not all thunderous some of it's thunderous um on the onma record in fact uh when we recorded that we set up uh, a pa behind him um, primarily because of the electronic sounds that he would play. Cause I thought I don't want the electronics to sound like they're disassociated with the drum kit because he plays it all as one performance. So I put the electronics out through the PA so that they would be captured by the room mics as well. And then I thought, well, why don't we do this a bit like a live thing? I'll add some direct mics in. I'll add the toms in, I'll add the kick and snare in, see what that is. That's like, along with the electronics, well, it elevated the whole, the whole drum kit. I mean, if you listen to the PA by itself, there was probably more electronics in it, but they were all being recorded and it all gelled the sound of the whole, the whole kit together, which was what I was looking for. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think it's, it's fair to say that, you know, it's all thunderous and he's breaking drum kits or breaking heads. It's, it's, you know, he's very, he's very respectful of his drum kits and, you know, even the, even the one that's made out of all symbols, right. That, that drum kit, but um, yeah, I, I, he's, he's such a great musician. He plays, plays loud. He plays soft. Did you happen to see uh, in the last two years since Fear and Oculum came out, there was a, a, 
live performance video of Danny Carey performing Numa um, that was sponsored by uh, drumsticks or a drum company. So it's the cameras on him for the entire performance. And this got like 20 plus million views. The whole world was like, what is happening? Uh, and it just shows like all four, like both hands, both feet are all doing something different. And it, mm-hmm. it makes no sense that a human brain can keep track of all that. Did you, did you happen to, to catch that video? Cause it's, it's insane. I, I haven't, I haven't seen that. I'll, I'll go look for I'll it. I'll send that. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, well, I don't, you already you know, know what it's like. I, I know what he's like. I, I know how incredibly talented, you know, and he would train. I mean, he's like, he's, he's, he's a musician and an athlete. I mean, drummers are athletes too. Right. So he would train for that. He would train, you know, in, and he would practice. I mean, this, this is the thing that tool does more than any band that I've ever, I've ever seen is they practice, they practice together all the time and they write and they work and they deconstruct, reconstruct, and they practice and they work on their parts until they know exactly what they're going to do. The, uh, the last thing I would say about tool is uh, that, that album that just came out a couple of years ago, fear inoculum, I, I, I love that album. I think that is up there with the, the best albums they've done, which are the ones, uh, the ones with you. Um, I, I, man, I, I, I think they're going as strong as they've ever gone. Um, do you, do you have any comments on the new album at all? And man, every song is, is, you know, 10 to 17 minutes long. There's just seven songs. They take you on a journey. It's, it's unbelievable. I, I think it's a natural progression for that band as to what they're doing. I think they're, the, all their albums are great. You know, I think the ones that I did are great. I, I, I think I really respect the ones that, that they've come up with since 10,000 days and, and fear inoculum. They're both amazing pieces of work by extremely talented musicians. So um, yeah. Um, I mean, I personally, I'm just, because I know the ones that I've done better. I, I'm, I'm, I, I just know them better. So I'm more partial to them, but I think that the, they, they keep evolving as a band and keep pushing forwards and they keep pushing forwards. What, uh, is acceptable for you know a rock band in the world that we live in to do. So I'm happy to um, uh, you know uh, endorse any of their work because I, I think you know they're they're one of the unique bands of my generation and are, are you know have a strong enough fan base that they're able to you know take a long number of time to develop a new record and, and their fans stick with them. And that's rare these days. And, you know, I'm proud to have been involved into, in that part of their career. So with the pandemic, <coughs> all, all concerts shut down for two years. The first concert I saw once things opened up again, uh, I'm in Ottawa. I went to Montreal for Dream Theater, which is a band. Uh, mm. you, you mixed a, an album uh, back in 1999. So Metropolis Part 2, Scenes from a Memory. That's considered one of their best. It shows up on greatest guitar albums of all time. Uh, so you, you mix the album. And in the end, they went with four of your mixes. And mm. later on, they they release an alternative mix uh, album that had all, all your mixes, I believe. Uh, mm. wh- what was it like mixing that music? And with all the, cra- again, we're talking about all-time great musicians between mm. Tool and, and Dream Theater. How do you find the right place in the mix for s- such complex instruments and, and parts? Yeah, it's hard. The, the, they're, they're all in that band. It's all very busy playing. So it's, it's finding a way to, panning is obviously one, tonal control is another. You have to find, you have to carve out tonal uh, differences between the sounds so that they can each speak 
when their moment is and balance. You know, you have a moment where something is more important. The other things take a back seat and you have to, you have to ride that constantly in a mix. Like that's more important. This is more important. This is taking the feature. This tone is too big. Now we have to thin that out for this sound to come through that sort of thing. So they were great to work with. John, you know, was, was uh, Petrucci was kind of taking the lead at that time in the band. Um, um, you know, they were, uh, I was, I had a, I had a little mini battle with uh, my young because he was, he was, there was a section of the song. You wanted chorus on the bass and I was never a big fan of, of chorus on the bass. I relented at one point, but uh, yeah, no, they went with Kevin's mix. I think they wanted, this was a time period when everybody was, you know, doing a lot of compression, a lot of limiting, making things very loud. I wasn't sort of so much into that. I wanted to breathe more, a little bit more dynamic. They wanted a more kind of upfront, harder hitting thing for, for Kevin's. And it's a great mix too it's just a different different take on the music so I, I i knew that they had released one with all of my mixes i don't know what the sort of um balance of of opinion is on that but so how is it decided if you're gonna produce a project engineer a product project mix a project how, how is that decided some bands you do everything some I guess maybe they've already produced with someone else and then they just want your great mix. How is that decided? It's usually what the, what the people want. I mean, I don't generally engineer, just, just engineer things anymore. Um, either I'll get hired as a producer or a mixer. So um, if they want, uh, if, if they want, sometimes, sometimes I'll just get hired as an executive producer to sort of listen to, listen to the demos or listen to the things and, and add sort of musical suggestions or sit in on rehearsal, help develop things. And then somebody else will take over. It's, it's, de- it's all dependent upon what the client wants. So if they want me to produce, then I can produce. If they want me to mix, I can mix. If they want me to do both. I can do both. If they want me to do just, you know, executive production. I can do that too. So it's just a matter of, of what, what the client wants and when they seek you out they have an idea for what they think your role will be and they'll ask is there a preference at all between the two like in a perfect world if you're going to work with a band would you hope to produce and mix or do you enjoy it one versus the other or are they just all skills that you offer that people are, are looking for i like variety so i i enjoy doing all of those jobs um and I like the fact that uh, I do I do different versions of them. If I were just to be doing one thing all the time, I think I would get bored. Like if I was just doing mixing for everybody all the time, as as nice as it is, because I just come in. This is also my home, my studio, so I'm able to stay at home to the mixing, go do something else. That's great. Um, but I do like to get my hands dirty and and dive into the trenches with a band with a full production. So, you know, it's, it's again, that often requires traveling or doing lots of things. So I like to have a balance of those two things. So we have another quote sent in here. This is uh, Glenn Milcham, the drummer from blue rodeo. So this is what he has to say. I've only worked with Dave on one project, which was with Ensign. Uh, am I saying that right? Ensign Broderick, AKA Ensign. Jason Ensign. Ensign Broderick. Uh, Ensign Roderick, a.k.a. Jason Snyderman. Uh, He was super pleasant and chill and easily one of the most fastidious uh, producers I've worked with. I was particularly impressed with how he had each song mapped out bar by bar with notes on particular things he wanted to hear from each instrument. He was very efficient, yet patient and respectful to the musician with no ego in spite of his impressive CV, a real gent and a consummate pro. Glenn Milcham, Blue Rodeo. That's very nice of him to say. I just saw Blue Rodeo the other night. 
went to go see them play in Hamilton, actually. Uh, yeah. Oh, Glenn was great to work with. Um, he was sort of, he mentioned my, uh, it's like charting. My, I've sort of developed over the years that I, I learned. I started uh, uh, from um, Dan Lanois. He, he would have books and he would, you know, take notes. And so I developed, you know, sort of stole that technique of having, I always have notebooks. I've got a million of them laying around. And when I get the demos for, for a band, I will chart out the song, but I don't chart it out on musical notation paper. I can read, but only like remedial note reading. Um, so I do, I do essentially just little boxes and the boxes have different shapes depending upon the time signature of the thing. And I've developed it over the last sort of what, 35 years to where, where now I can map out the whole song. I can take notes on the side, write chordal, you know, progressions inside the boxes. It's just a way that, that I've developed that I can communicate music to me. So I can, I can listen, I can look at the page, I know where I am and I know what I want to have done at that point. So I can write notes. I can, I can also use it to like assess performances. So uh, as I'm going down instrumentally, it's like the guitar is doing this. Okay. Well, I've got you know, some notes coming down and I'll know when the whole thing's finished. Cause I, my memory's not so great, never really was. So I, I like to know from a visual standpoint, like, yeah, we've recorded this guitar part and it's all done. We're, we're all, we're all there. If, if I don't, sometimes I've gone back early in my career, I would go back in a project and go off. Oh, we never recorded the second chorus with that guitar. What, what are we doing? This is the days before flying stuff around was so easy. Right. So it's like, you'd have to call them back in to play it again this way. You know, you, you know, from a visual standpoint, what jobs are done and what are not. In 2001, you you worked with Muse on Origin of Symmetry. Uh, you recorded four songs, three of which ended up being singles. Uh, and then there was an overlap in schedule between the, the Tool album and, and the Muse album. Is that correct? Well, I mean, there was a little bit, but it was it was as much as anything that they were on tour. Oh. So they came in. In, in a time frame where they, they were in the midst of a tour. So we went to a studio, recorded those songs, and then they went back out on tour again. So okay, there was, there was two conflicts. Got it. So there's a question sent here, uh, sent in here from Selge Menard. Uh, he asks, given this was so early in Muse's career, what was your greatest challenge making a three-piece sound so good? It seems normal at this point of their career, but that album, although not their first, really set that standard for great sounding three-piece. You know, I, I worked with sort of smaller bands before. Uh, I think it's just a matter of like the, the musical ideas that Matt Bellamy would have um, and and the sort of fullness of the tone of both the drums and Chris on the bass, the, the way that they filled out that area that you can get a big sound from a three piece as long as I mean, they're not they're not dissimilar to the way Rush works. Right. They, they they're able to fill out sounds with different you know, bigger parts or more like added things that they can play live because they, they, they like, they don't usually track, like play the track too much. Like Rush never plays very rarely where it plays to any track, maybe the odd like subdivisions vo vocal or something like that. But other than that, you know, they're able to create this because they have great musical ideas that, that cover all the spaces and nothing's, you don't feel um, unsatisfied. So yeah, we worked very hard to develop like interesting parts and interesting um, approaches to things so that the, the, the didn't feel like an empty, uh, an empty sound. So Muse is known as such an amazing live band. Um, 
I, I've heard that you you had the band record together to capture that live sound energy. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that true? And and how how do you keep the sounds separated when when recording? If everyone's recording together, are they in separate isolation rooms? booths? Isolation yeah, booths. Isolation booths. And nowadays, it's a lot it's a lot easier because you can really. Um, uh, utilize, uh, you know, sort of uh, for recording purposes, you can record DI for a lot of, and then reamp things. So you can get a lot of isolation. Um, it's great when bands can play together. I only do it though with bands that are really great at playing together. Otherwise, you know, younger bands are often really not as experienced. You know, they're not not as good at at you know working together in a studio. Studio being a more um, an intimidating environment for young bands. So that this way. You know, I will say, okay, well, let's go in and let's focus on each instrument so we get it all right and you're comfortable with what you're hearing. You know, whereas, you know, if you're if you're a younger band and you're trying to play through a song and somebody messes up in the middle, it, it can become a frustration. Um, whereas more experienced and 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 um, more skilled musicians, we can you can play them together and they can get that band feel. So this this album was a big hit in the UK. I, I because of the label, I don't think it was released in the US until much uh, several years later, and then became, you know, it's done well since then. Uh, could you have predicted while recording this album that that band Muse would go on to become one of the biggest bands in the world for the last twenty plus years? Yeah, actually, I could. Um, and the reason is this: I saw them play. Uh, in London, before we worked together, I went to go see them play at this little club called the Monarch. Now, it was a small venue, um, smaller than like we're talking back room of the Rivoli kind of, you know, that, you know, that place yep, in Toronto? Toronto, small, small venue, nothing of any size. And they were playing that show like they were playing Wembley Stadium. They were playing, they were playing not to the back row, they were playing to three streets over. Right. And I asked Matt about that afterwards. I said, wow, you guys are really, you know, you put on this big show. He's like, I'm aiming for this big show. It's like, if I don't play it now, I'll never be able to play it. So I'm going for this. And he was driven as a musician and as an artist. So I knew that that either it was it was going to be huge or die catastrophically. One of the two. So I, I, I could have predicted that. So back then, Muse was signed to Maverick Records, which is Madonna's label. And this is rumor. Rumor has it that when you guys completed the album, that they weren't happy with how much falsetto that Matt was singing. And they wanted him to go back and somehow change the melodies. So he wasn't singing so high. The band refused. They got dropped. That's why it's only out in the UK. They signed with a new label. Is that true or is that just rumor? I, I can't speak to that. I, I wasn't involved in those conversations, so I, I don't know. Um, that is fair I mean, I think, I think the problem was that at the time they were being con- compared quite heavily to Radiohead, um, which, <clears throat> I mean, I don't think is really fair because they're really not the same kind of band. Um, but anybody who would sing up in that register would immediately get compared to Tom York because he sings up in that register. It's like anybody who sings with a high voice in, in rock rock gets compared to Getty and it's yeah. you know like Coheed and Cambria, right? Which the bands are really nothing alike or very little alike other than they both, you know, have guitars and high voices, but that's it, you know? So I, I, I don't know. I find it, I find it, 
people are lazy often when they they come to these comparisons and they don't listen to the nuts and bolts of the music they just hear a high falsetto voice and go oh well it's just like Tommy York and Radiohead and and maybe that was that was the concern that that would be too much of a competition I don't know anyway I think Muse of anybody have carved out their own unique identity within the music so I think whoever thought that that might have been a drawback were wrong yeah, they've gone on to sell 30 million records. I think the, the record label uh, made a mistake there, possibly. Um, so, some musicians have this aura around them of, of genius. Someone like a Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, mm-hmm. Maynard from Tool, you know, maybe Dave Grohl from Nirvana Foo Fighters. I, I kind of get that feeling with Matt Bellamy. Uh, is, is that is that a, a, an accurate statement that he just oozes this musical genius, different mm. instruments, the live performance, such grandiose vision of what's possible? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think part, you know, a big part of my role during the recording was to make sure that Matt would complete one idea before he went on to the four others that he had within, within the, the process of overdubbing one part. So, you know, it was really to keep him, it was really as much as anything to keep him focused to finish, finish the job in one. It's like, we would be in the middle of a guitar overdub and he'd be like, Oh, I want to do this thing on the world. So hang on. So it would be plugged in. Yeah. Okay. We'll play that. And I, I'm like, okay, get that idea down. Now let's go back. Let's finish this guitar. And then we'll go over there. And then in the middle of that, you'd be like, oh, but I want to do this. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think that he has, you know, as much claim to musical genius as, as any of the greats that I've worked with. He just sounds like he's just oozing with ideas and creativity. Yeah, for sure. So in, in 2002, you work with Mudvayne, uh, the album, The End of All Things to Come. It seems like it seems like you're just working with bands that have absolute world-class musicianship um is that something that stood out to you about mudvayne is that each of those musicians are just incredible musicians oh, for on sure for sure really great i mean the, the you know greg obviously a great great riff player but it's funny how he he kind of ends up being almost like the sort of the rhythm bass player in that band and ryan ends up being the melody player because he's such an incredible virtuoso on bass um uh, yeah, again, a, a group of super talented musicians and a great singer. Um, same sort of thing. It's just it was just a different flavor because Mudvayne so much had their character by the fluidity of the bass sound. When when I was 17, I did a road trip with my parents from Ottawa to Toronto for Canadian Music Week. And I saw Mudvayne. I was 17 and this uh, unknown trio band they looked like teenagers opened and it was three days grace so nobody knew them at the time a few months later maybe i don't know a year later i hate everything about you blows up on radio they've been one of the biggest bands since then so i got to see this double bill with three days grace and mudvayne and man mudvayne i remember the the lights came on just blinding white lights and everyone kind of has to turn away and then the lights go off. And when you look, the members are all on stage in their place. And then they just dropped into the songs and it was like breathtaking. Hmm. Yeah. Very exciting live for sure. They put on a great show. It's, it's quite an assault what they do, but in the an best assault on way. the senses. Yeah. 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 That, that's, I, I always wanted to ask you uh, because you've worked with these, these bands that are so complex and and so intricate and such amazing musicians is it ever intimidating going into a project 
where you know a band's going to do this insanely epic album with crazy epic songs with very um you know very intense parts uh crazy time signatures is it ever intimidating before starting a project thinking like how am i going to capture all of this into one package and does it do you ever just think man i want to go record a, a a straight up pop artist that's going to do three minute songs four chords do you ever think that or is that just me um you know i think i attract to myself the um the kind of band that has intricate parts and intricate um compositions so um it's never it's not really intimidating to me anymore um at the beginning you know which would have been really the king crimson or something like that or but i mean i kind of grew up doing music like that already so it, it's not really been anything I ever overthought it was just like, okay, well, here's a song and it's this length and let's see what let's, you know, let's see what the best way is to record it and let's record it and get it down and, and mix it in the way that all the important parts, you can hear them very well. So um, yeah, it would be fun to do uh, something different uh, in this, in the sense of simplicity. Um, but I would probably, I would probably want to fill it up with a few things because, you know, that's sort of what I'm used to. Um, but yeah, having something simple, simple and uh, non non complex would be fun to do. Someday. Someday. So I, I have a. Another... I just don't get those calls, Joel. You, Nobody calls I, I feel like things, it's self inflicted pain with all these super difficult Maybe. projects. Yeah, yeah. You're a glutton for pain in the musical realm. Well, people look at your history and say, "Well, he does that." So okay, let's call him. I have uh, I have a, another comment sent in here. Uh, this is from a Juno award-winning engineer mixer that's worked with Olivia Rodrigo, Jason Mraz, Snoop Dogg. So this is from Vic Florencia. Oh, yeah, Vic. Uh, so he says, ah, David, we all know him as an awesome engineer, producer, mixer. Besides having great ears, he has a wonderful heart. He's always eager to share his wealth of knowledge and offer advice. I'm honored to call him a friend. He's so good. It's ridiculous. Now back to us figuring out the whole Atmos thing. LOL. Was <laughs> so that Dolby you know, Atmos? Is that's that it? it. Yeah. So Vic and Ryan and I, we've been spending a bunch of time trying to, trying to work out the Atmos mixing. And I did a, I did an Atmos mix for, um, uh, the mud, uh, the, sorry, the Mastodon record that I just did. And so, uh, we're all fairly new at it. Um, it's pretty exciting. It's kind of like the wild west where, you know, there's lots of different standards and nobody's really, you know, figured out exactly how it's supposed to go. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to mix in Atmos. You get a lot more dimension to work with. So, um, and, and yeah, I mean, Vic, Vic's a ma he's becoming a master at it. So, you know, he, I was up at his studio the other day and he was playing me some stuff and it just blows me away. He was so good. So, yeah. Um, it's it where he's he's way ahead of me on that for sure um I, i'm trying to catch up i'm one of the old guys now trying to catch up to the young bucks is that what we're hearing with spatial audio is that the same thing or no spatial audio i think is a different format um i think that's more of a sony format uh, most is dolby uh so um i believe i could be wrong don't quote me on that but i think okay. spatial audio is just more of a sony thing kind of like vhs Max kind of thing and, and this Atmos, is different Atmos, it was developed by okay and this Atmos is different was developed than by Dolby. sound so, 
This is a different thing. It is than... surround sound. No, it's okay. surround sound. It's immersive, it's immersive audio. So it is, there are speakers everywhere, but it translates as well to binaural uh, in, in just stereo uh, headphones. Um, app, huh. Apple iPods do the, the the proper one that even is is sort of location-based. So, you, you know, when you turn your head, the music stays there kind of thing, which is a little bit weird for me, but, but they do the binaural. So it translates to binaural 5171, and then full Atmos, uh, the, the, the system kind of you know, in a magical way that I only so much understand seems to know what your playback situation is and adapts itself to fit that playback situation. So you, you, from there you go, you work with silver chair. So uh, diorama in 2002, you produce and mix young modern 2007, you mix. And I remember when Frog Stomp came out and the, the band members were like 14 years old and, and, you know, everyone was looking for the next Nirvana. And we're, we're talking about musicians that seem like musical geniuses. I, I feel like Daniel Johns is in there as well. And, and the, the band going from kind of the grunge start to, you know, around Diorama, there's, there's a lot of different sounds coming in and some orchestra stuff. And, and it seems like they really expanded their sound. And then by young modern, it's, it's something completely different. Um, I actually just listened. He has a new album that just came out recently, like maybe a month ago, he has a new album. So all these years, I mean, how long has that been? That's been like 30 years. Um, how did you come to work with, with silver chair? So uh, they, uh, I would agree with you that Daniel is in that camp of, of musical geniuses. I think, um, again, exhibiting uh, the strengths and and some of the weaknesses, unfortunately, uh, of people that have have that ability. Um, uh, he approached me um, through his manager, John Watson, great guy. Um, uh, because they wanted to make something that was going to be challenging to his audience. So they, we, we sat down, we had a meeting and he told me what he wanted to do. And essentially it was, you know, he had in mind to make his version of pet sounds, right? He wanted to do his defining record. And when he played me some songs and, and we discussed it, and I heard his conviction and I heard the quality of the music that was being written. I was, I was, you know, um, excited to be a part of it. So it was the game, them knowing the history of what I had done, seeking me out. I think that um, over my career, the most successful projects that I've had have been uh, uh, embarked upon because the artist knew my work and wanted me to be a part of their next project. So um, I do get, I do approach and try to pursue some things, but the things that tend to work out the best are when the band seek out me. So I have some, some words sent in here. Uh, this is from Kevin Dietz, whom, you know, uh, he might've worked with you on silver chair, but for sure he's oh, worked Dietz with is, you. Dietz is one of a bunch of worked on a bunch of stuff with me. Yeah. 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 The placebo, yeah. the, you know, circus survives stone sour. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is what he has to say. I spent a lot of time assisting Dave on recording sessions and mixes. Uh, I've learned an immense amount from him in the process. 
I learned the importance of being organized, attention to detail, keeping a session moving, and being decisive, while still keeping the environment creative and accommodating towards the artist. I'm very grateful for the high-level experience and mentorship I've gained from working with Dave. So that's from Kevin. Kevin's become a great producer engineer himself. So, you know, he's long surpassed anything I could ever teach him. And I'm sure I could learn a few things from him. And you were, uh, you were kind enough. I had him as a special guest on the podcast a few months ago. You were kind enough to send in some nice words for him. Uh, so I'm just checking at the time here. We have about a, a half hour left. There's still so many artists. We want to get to your charity. So maybe I'll just run through a few of these. So you, you, you worked with Godsmack in 2003. Um, we have we have Coheed and Cambria, Stained. So Stained is one of my all-time favorite bands, just all-time okay. favorite. Love those guys. Um, what what was it about Stained that made you want to work with them for uh, Chapter 5 in 2005? Uh, again, I didn't really know a whole lot about Stained when they first approached me, but it was from the music that they sent me. And I thought, oh, okay, this is really good. I, I, I'll you know, be a, love to be a part of this. And so we actually made made the record, you'll laugh. Um, they, they didn't want to leave Springfield, Massachusetts, which is where they were. So they said, um, can we, can we build a little studio up here and work up here? And I said, yeah, well, let's, let's see. So it turns out that the, the drummer in the band was good friends with, um, uh, a landlord that owned a big warehouse building and they were, uh, using the top floors, their rehearsal space, and we could build a studio up there but it was actually the uh, entrance to a strip club that we had to go through in order to get up to the studio. It was on the third floor. So we'd have to go in in the morning with the strippers as they're entering for their day shift and kind of we'd walk up the stairs and go in and make music in the studio all day and then come back down at night and walk back through the strip club to go out to dinner or to go leave, <laughs> go back to the hotel. So it was a, it was a very interesting experience. A little bit of extra entertainment there at the start and the end of the day. You know what? No, because I don't know if you think there's any kind of glamour that goes on in a strip club. Do not ever walk into one in the daytime with the fluorescent lights on. Oh, man. It's that might be the best advice you've given all day today on, on this uh, on this interview. That's mm. funny. So that that album had some of the, the band's most beloved songs like Right Here and Everything Changes. Can, can you give the Stain fans any insight on on the recording of those two songs? Do you, is there anything that stands out in the studio for those songs? Well, I think I, I mean, you know, the guys in the band, great, great musicians, of course. Um, uh, you know, Mushok would work very, very hard again on his guitar parts. And we would we would work a lot with him getting getting things just feeling just right. It's more about feel than it was necessarily about exactitude, but just getting the feel right. And, and, and I know that uh, Aaron called, uh, you know, some, uh, some of the other singers that uh, I had worked with before and they, they warned him that, that I would make him sing more than once or twice. So I, I like to get the performance right. I like to make sure that, that the intention that the singer has is getting out there. So I, I, would, I would make him sing a lot. And then other singers, in fact, called him when they wanted to work with me. And he said, yeah, he'll make you sing a lot. So, you know, they, they, unfortunately the, the way that we had the studio, we just had like a whisper booth for him to, to sing in. So I don't think it was a very pleasant environment. That's, that's, that's sort of a, a regret of mine in that we didn't like with Corey Taylor, we, we, we set up like this kind of 
yurt in the middle of the studio and he was able to kind of have his like environment in there with, with Aaron unfortunately all we had was this whisper booth and it was pretty small and, and so it probably wasn't really pleasant to sit in a lot of the time so I can understand it'd be frustrating to have to sing a lot in an environment that you're not really that comfortable so um that was probably a failing on my part to not make an environment that was more conducive, but we got great performances out of him. So, um, you know, we would sit in the studio a lot and, you know, he was looking for, you know, writing lyrics and he was, he was always, um, uh, you know, kind of looking for inspiration. So we'd sit in the control room and if he wasn't, didn't, wasn't sure on something, we'd chat, we'd just think, and he'd maybe pull some phrases of what we were talking about and sort of work that way in, in writing some of the lyrics at the time. So, um, yeah, uh, uh, he loved to shock Aaron. He was, you know, he's kind of got this sort of slightly libertarian streak to him. And he came in one day and he, he knows, he knows my position on, on firearms. I'm not a big fan. And, um, uh, anyway, he, he came in, showed up with his, you know, his Glock in his back pocket and just sort of put it on the table. I was like, I'm going to go sing now. And it's all for show. It's all for kind of make, make me have a reaction to it. Whereas like, what are you bringing that thing in here for? You know, it's just, anyway, it, it, he, he likes to do that. He likes to provoke, likes to shock, likes to, to say things that are, that are provocative. So yeah, but they were great sessions. They were fun guys to, to be around and work with. I, I find that man, Mike has so many badass, badass riffs and, and catchy licks. I find Mike to be underrated as a guitarist. Yeah. And, and then on the, the drum side, uh, I find that John has a way of, um, creating hooks with the drums like he does this thing with his hi-hat sometimes where mm -hmm. the hi-hats are creating this hook like he does it in it's it's been a while and that's not on that album but mm -hmm. uh, just an example of his playing it, mm -hmm. did you find him to be unique as a, a drummer at all it seems like he he he's able to add extra hooks with his drums. yeah he, he does that he does write in very interesting parts that that do have memor memorable memorable moments to them so yeah I mean, you know, they were all great musicians. They're all, all, all played in really interesting ways. The bass player, Johnny is funny. He would, uh, he, he, he played this one gig, I think uh, years before after having like a salami sandwich. So when he would play in the studio, he had a little bag of salami and to get his fingers slippery, he would put his hand in the bag of salami and then play the bass. <laughs> it's a little bit weird for me, but it's like whatever gets you the best sound and you're, makes you feel comfortable. That's fine. That's amazing. Uh, so you did the, I got my Coheed and Cambria shirt on here. Uh, you worked with Coheed in 2005, long album titles, Good Apollo and Burning Star uh, 4. We'll just leave it at that. There's a longer title that <laughs> continues there. Yep. Um, so that was a huge major breakthrough for them. And we have, we have a question sent here from a fan. Um, this is from Cam Hudson from Montreal. He says, this particular album features two of their most commercially successful singles of all time in Welcome Home and The Suffering. Did you know those two songs would be big hits and would stand the tests of time when you were mixing them? Um, you know, I, I thought I, I, I every project that I work on, when you get to know the material, you 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 believe in it. So I'm always thinking that about projects that I work with. And I think, yeah, The Suffering, I thought that was an amazing song. And 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 Welcome Home, too. I thought well, these could be huge, but you never know whether they really are. And it's a, a lot of it's about timing. You know, when you release something, it's either got good timing or bad timing. I mean, when they you know, when 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 Silverchair released Diorama. 
their audience wasn't ready for it. So it wasn't as much of a success. And the, and the, at the, in the same breath, the, the label didn't really, I don't think, supported it as much as they could have. You know, they, I know Daniel got sick and he wasn't able to tour it. But all these things, all, these, all this music comes out and, and timing is, is huge in that. Sometimes the world is looking for, you know, the song that, that, that you're putting out. Sometimes they're not. So, yeah, I always believe in the music that I'm working on. Um, whether it's released at the right time or whether it becomes successful is down to things that are generally out of my control. I just listened to the album again in its entirety last night with a good pair of studio headphones. I think you did an amazing job mixing that album. And, and you. you know, if we take Welcome Home, for example, the acoustic intro and the band kicking in, um, the guitar solos, it's, it's like they're panned left and right. And it's like they're two guitars that are dueling. I don't know if it's mm -hmm. one guitarist or two guitarists, but they're dueling. And then at the end of the song where um, the instruments fade out, but the the uh, the strings continue like there's just a lot of it's not just a great song. It's I find that some of the mixing actually adds to what makes that song great. Um, what kind of memories do you have when you think back to mixing that song? It must have been a fun one to do with all the cool parts in it. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. But I mean, it, it sort of leans into the way that I think about this kind of music is that you're taking the, the listener on a journey. And if you've got these parts, you've got these different moods that you can feature and, and um, highlight at different times, you're able to take the listener on a journey and you're able to, to have them come along with you both compositionally and sonically. So uh, that, that record sort of um, was very much in the vein of, of how I like to hear music and how I like to, to mix music. So in 2012, you mixed the Smashing Pumpkins album, Oceania. Hopefully I'm not butchering all these album names. And uh, I, I hadn't been listening to the Smashing Pumpkins in, in a while. And I remember that album coming out. I didn't have huge expectations. And I remember being blown away that it, it was, I, I thought it was one of their best albums in a long time. And critically, it was considered a return to form for the band. Um the album sounds great. I guess my question is when you're just mixing an album for a band, do, do they show up in the studio and, and are there for the mixing and, and have their input or do they just kind of get the final product? You say, what do you think? And they go, Oh, I'd like guitars louder here and there, or is it different for every band? It's normally different, but these days, um, especially when I mix at home, people tend to send things to me and I send back my first draft, get revisions from them and we refine it from there. Uh, with the case of, <clears throat> sorry, with the case of uh, both uh, Elegy and Oceania, um, I went to Billy's studio in, in just outside Chicago. And in fact, the Oceania was so much fun because uh, it was on, still on tape. The guitars were on tape. The drums and bass were on, or no, I think the bass was on tape. The drums were on Pro Tools. And I think the key, some keyboards were on Pro Tools, but all the guitars were on tape. Now, he didn't have a console big enough for all those inputs. So we actually had an old EMI console for a, a very old kind of beatle sound for the drums on one track. We had... Uh, a Neve console. We had a Trident A series console about, around behind me. And then we had 
uh, a Helios that we kind of put it all into. Now, this is a totally analog, totally performance mixed thing. So there wasn't any like, well, recalling. And I said to Billy at the beginning, I said, look, you know, if you want me to mix this way, I'm happy to, but know that we're not going to be able to do a recall where, uh, you know, we just tweak one little thing and then print it again. It's not going to be exactly the same because I'm performing it as we go. In fact, I had to turn switches on and off because of the noise levels of everything. So it was really full on. I was able to bring things down into subgroups. So I had a little set of 24 subgroups that I could mix with, but that was it, right? It wasn't so wasn't as easy to sort of do a full on full on recall. Billy said, I never do recalls. So if I don't like the mix, I'll just do it again. So I thought, okay, this is good. So I started off the mix. I built the first song and I got it and I got it done. And I printed it. It was all printed down onto half inch tape. And so uh, I did the mix and I brought Billy in and said, come and listen to see what you think. This is the first, first project that we, we'd done together. And he listened. He's like, yeah, it's pretty good. I don't know. There's kind of something missing, you know, certain area and i said and i thought maybe the guitar solo was was maybe a bit loud and i said i turned and i said well do you think maybe the guitar solo is a bit loud and he looked at me without a shred of irony and said the guitar solo was never too loud That's without, such a without any joke exactly so anyway i it ended up just being like you know what i'll let me do another pass so i did another pass and i basically took the rhythm guitars and the body of the guitars filled them out and brought them up a little bit and he brought them back in he's going yeah that's my band great and that was it that was that was the essence of it. And every other mix I did, there was maybe one or two little things, but he was very happy with it. And actually, in the last sort of 20 years, it's one of my most fun mixing projects to ever do. It sounds sounds complex with all the different uh, equipment. But it was great. It was a lot. It was so much fun because it was really these days. I don't get to do performance mixes that much, you know, because bands always want to have, you know, like okay well or, or labels or whoever yeah can you do that again but turn the vocal up here between bar 25 and 35 up by 2 db and then you know brighten this at this point it's like okay you know but so you don't get to have that just sort of vibe kind of performance mix going on i understand it from the standpoint and i have you know my mixing studio is you know you can see it's not full of consoles and faders and stuff like that because you just end up getting the requests from clients to do minute detail changes so you have to do it in the box so we're up to stone sour in your discography house of gold and bones part one and part two it's crazy it's already been a decade it feels like those albums didn't come out that long ago um did you did you guys know from the start that this would be a two-part project yes yep yeah it was it was it was booked out as being that thing so and they were going to be a, a year apart that that they were released or that they were released yeah we recorded it all at the same time oh okay see that's yeah. stuff that we don't know as as fans oh yeah no we 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 recorded the whole project all uh, and mixed it all in in one uh they they mixed it down in one go you know so, so- we have a, a fan question. So this is Cam Hudson from Montreal who sent in the question about the uh, coheed. So he had a two-part question. Uh, Corey Taylor seems to change up his voice from one project to the next so that each one is distinct. Um, what was it like working with such a powerhouse vocalist? So oh, pretty, pretty open-ended question. Corey's amazing. Corey, Corey, you know, Corey's neck is really thick, right? And so he's got power in his vocal cords, really strong power and incredible passion. I mean, his backstory is amazing, right? That he's homeless for some points of time. People in his life have come and gone in terrible ways. And I mean, he's 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 a remarkable human being to have come out of 
you know, the, the world that he has and, and to be as strong, you know, I loved working with him. He was, he was a joy uh, just as a person uh, to be around and, and to work with. And like I said, in the studio, we set him up like it was, it was like a big tent, but we called it his yurt, you know, and he had all the whole environment inside was, was all set up. It was for isolation, but it was also for, you know, creative, creative an environment that he's, that he's happy with. So someone else that's worked with Corey Taylor is producer Jay Rustin, also worked yep. with Coheed and Fallout Boy. He says, David is an amazing producer and a great guy. We finally met in person and we clicked immediately. Yeah, so that's that's Jay. Jay's, Jay's awesome. Yeah, great guy. And he did a great job on that mix of that album for sure. So we're, we're coming up to the last 15 minutes. We're going to dive into uh, Make Music Matter. Uh, I had three more artists. I had Rush, The Tea Party, and Mastodon. Uh, you had touched on Mastodon a little bit. It's crazy. That's that, When that album came out, it, it was on like 14 different best of the year lists, like super critically acclaimed. I think the band as a whole is one of the most critically acclaimed metal bands of the last uh, while. Um, again, super talented musicians, crazy time signatures uh, i guess i would ask a question about great mixing. great great human beings too okay great, See, great that's the stuff beings. you don't always hear you know no super super people really great people yeah they become they become good friends which is nice so with uh with rush uh, so you you remix the album vapor trails i'm, I'm curious how do, do you have constraints when you're remixing an album versus just mixing an album? Do you have to listen to the original to have a, a no, no, set not, point to move? No, from? no, I don't. I don't like to do that. I don't want to recreate. The, I would just end up trying to recreate the other mix for the most part. Um, no, in that case. So it was an interesting story. When I when I first moved back to Toronto uh, was when they were doing that work uh, for that album. That was just after Neil's family had passed away and he'd been on his sort of two year um, self-reflection motorcycle trip. Uh, he was getting back into writing and playing and they, they sort of said, well, you know, they called me up and said, will you come down and listen, maybe do some work with us. And I, I came down to the studio and we sat in for the day and they said, you know, would you, would you do this with us? And I, I said, well, um, how long do you think you're going to want to work? They're like, yeah, Neil's just kind of getting back in this. We're probably going to be doing this for a year. And I thought, well, I can't really commit a whole year to, to one project. So I said, look, you know, um, let's talk maybe later in the year and see where you're at. And maybe if you want me to dive in, that didn't happen in the end, which is fine. It, it didn't, didn't bother me at all, but, um, but they, they mixed it at the time where uh, it was right kind of in the height of the volume wars. And so it was very heavily limited, very compressed, very, um, very little dynamic in it. And a lot of the fan base weren't happy with it. The band weren't really happy with it, the mix of it. Um, and so it, it, this went on, you know, amongst nowadays uh, you have it back, back in the old days, you'd never have that kind of review of something, but social media is, is a thing and, and their fan base always wanted it to, to be remixed. So they got a hold of me and said, look, you know, ironically, I, 10 years after we didn't do this album together, would you like to remix it? So I said, sure. And, and, and I did. And, there was very little restriction. They weren't over at my studio. They just said, here, take the, take the material and have a go. So I did. And they were very happy with it at the end. I mean, we took, you know, one song and did it and they had revisions and, but just the general tone of it, they were like, yeah, this is great. We love this. So um, yeah, there was sort of all kinds of 
conspiracy theories online about, well, the, the recordings were bad and they had to re-record solos and re-record everything. It's not the case at all. I got the, I got the material and it all sounded great. It was well-recorded. It was just mixed in a way that was, that was consummate to the time. And, you know, the, the history has shown that, that people prefer things with a little bit more breathing space, a little bit more dynamic. So I just did a mix like that. And, you know, the, the fan base, I think, is generally happy with it. Rush fans are also extremely passionate. So, you know, you're going to get feedback. I, I, got, I got probably, I'd say, 80% Rush love and, and 20% Rush hate. So it's pretty good when it comes you know, to Rush and their diehard. I, I thought it was a fair. I thought it was a fairly good ratio. Yeah, I saw some comments of people hating it, and I saw lots of comments of people loving it. So hmm. I'll take it. Since uh, since 2009, you've been on the board of directors for Make Music Matters. For for people listening to this podcast that they're hearing about this charity for the first time, can you just share a little bit more about what what that is and why it's important? Sure. So uh, at Make Music Matter, we use the creation of music to help marginalized communities and individuals. So what that essentially means is we set up recording studios in various parts of the world. And our flagship is in the Pansy Hospital in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where there's a civil war going on um, and people use rape as a, a means of control. So there are a lot of women that come to Pansy Hospital, which was set up by the Nobel laureate, Dr. Dennis McQuaige, for reconstructive surgery for the women that have suffered this gender-based violence. These women come get their surgery, then come in groups to our studio, and they start talking about their, their experiences. We have a, a music producer and a therapist, and this goes for all the sites we have all around the world. They come in, and they talk about their situation. The producer has some music going on in the background, some original chord progressions and some rhythms. They start talking about the situation. They start writing these songs. They believe that they're just here to write some songs. The therapy gets kind of put in under the radar. They're able to sing and record these songs and they, they, they write these things. They become advocates for their situation. Their songs are professionally recorded and mixed. And then we release them out through Warner Music Canada all over the world and particularly back into their local communities. So not only do they become world advocates, they become local advocates for their situation. They were able to bond with the children that are often born out of these rapes in this particular situation. Um, and uh, we treat them essentially not as patients, but we treat them as true artists. So we have a record label and a publishing company where any revenues and not really very much revenue gets generated because these aren't, you know, really pop songs or, or super popular. And we don't promote them as much other than through our charity. But the, th the, the reality is that, that the healing of trauma that comes from this process is better than anything else that's been tried in most situations around the world. And our, our model is able to heal trauma, however it's generated. So we're moving into indigenous communities in Canada. We have uh, sites with um, children with disabilities in uh, just uh, outside Aleppo, out of Syria. It's, it's actually in Gaziantep, which is in Turkey, just on the other side of the border. We're working with the um, uh, educational system in Peru. So kids there. Uh, we've worked with child soldiers in the past. We've worked with men, women, boys, girls. This program heals trauma like nothing else. And we've had every, every program we go through has scientific metrics where we, we interview, we, we find their levels of trauma, we find their levels of anxiety and PTSD. 
before and after the program. And it comes back every time from specialist and peer reviewed studies, nothing works like this. So we, we work all over the world with different, um, different communities and different groups. We hire local producers, local therapists. So it's not, you know, here comes Western culture to kind of save you. No, we, we work with people on the ground and we vet all the people that work in our organization from the local communities. So it's the local community supporting and helping the local community. And this is, this is really important stuff. You're clearly passionate about it. There, there's a big list of, of popular musicians that have, you know, lent their support to the cause, including Ian Thornley of Big Rack, the Tragically mm-hmm. Hip, Alex Lifeson of Rush, Billy Talent, Sum 41, the Trues. Uh, how much does it mean to you that these musicians have supported the cause? Well, it means the world, you know, these, but these musicians know what the healing power of musical creation does. Right. They just know that intrinsically. So so it's almost in a way it's easy to sell it to them. It's harder to sell to people around the world who think, well, you're just sitting around a campfire singing Kumbaya. It's not that at all. It's actually scientifically based in how we're able to heal the trauma and and do things like. So in the case of the the, the DRC, the, the a lot of the kids that are born out of this, they, they won't get accepted by the mothers because it's a terrible, traumatic memory right so they'll be shunned they won't be fed properly they won't be uh educated properly they'll often be targets for militias to come around turn them into child soldiers to then go back destroy their own village and create and perpetrate the same atrocities that came that that ended up that that started their own life so if you can break that cycle through this program and we we have we have teams i think it's we're almost up to a hundred mixing engineers now that we send all of these songs that come in and they get mixed properly and released through through that so it's not just like poor recordings and 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 cheap you know cheap mixes we get top professionals to work on these things and and these the music gets produced you know as 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 well as anything and you know we're able to do things like stop the cycle of rape you know, victim into child soldier into, you know, uh, atrocities happening around the world, plus helping communities around. We're, we're, we're looking at, at working with the Canadian healthcare industry in the Alzheimer's community, right? And trying to help, you know, work there. We all know how much music means to people who are going through dementia or, you know, there's, there's just a multitude of ways that what we do can apply to trauma, however it's generated. So, um, yeah, we're partners. Again, I know I'm sort of giving a scattershot thing, but we're partners with World Vision, which is the largest charity in the world. So we work through their infrastructure to reach communities that that need our help. Um, and having the support of musicians like Alex, like Ian Desai and Colin McCaslin, you know, from Sum 41, Ian from Billy Talent and all the guys in the Trues. And just having those support means so much to us because it validates the truth of what we're what we're doing. So. Man, for our listeners that are that are inspired by what they're hearing, those that want to support, those that want to donate, how can people donate? Go to our website at www.makemusicmatter.org. So make music matter. And uh, there's a donate button there. You can read about what we're doing, where we are around the world um, and how we're expanding. Perfect. So to wrap up, I have I have. Two questions. These are a little bit deeper, more about life than than music. We've covered all the music we can today. Uh, you know, David, what do you think is the meaning of life? What is the the point of all of this? I'm I'm sure with what you've just said about the charity that that 
that's a big part about, you know, if you find success, you should find a way to give back to those that, that could use a helping hand. I think it's pretty straightforward. I mean, you enjoy the ride and try to leave the room cleaner than when you left. Sorry, try to leave the room cleaner than when you got there or, you know, make the, it's cliched, I know, and it's BS, but, you know, if you can help to make the world better and, and, you know, like the world has gotten better since I, since I was born, the world is a better place, you know, demonstrably. We have, you know, more comfortable lives in the Western world for the most part. Uh, we have more comfortable lives. We have better health care. We've got, you know, our, our, our lifespans are longer. We're healthier throughout it. You know, we're still learning, but ge- things are generally better than they've ever been. That doesn't mean we don't want to keep making them better and we keep wanting to contribute to make things better. So, yeah, clean your room, but enjoy the ride. Final question. If you could go back in time and you could sit down next to your 10-year-old self, so you have cute little David Bottrell sitting beside you. I don't know how cute I was. (laughs) If you could give some words of advice with all these years you've had of experience, triumphs, failures, mentorship, what advice do you pass on to 10-year-old David Bottrell to help him along the way? Don't be afraid to ask, I think. Um, Don't don't be afraid to... uh, Acknowledge what you don't know and don't be afraid to ask for what you want, I think is what I would say. Um, Too many times in life, you try to fake it through. I know I have like, oh, yeah, I know that. And then you don't. Or, you know, I really want this, but I'm too afraid to ask. You know, all people can do is say no. And um, I think people will respect you more when you're honest about what you're ignorant about and what you do know, and what you want to learn. Um, the great thing in, in what I do is, is it's been a nonstop uh, exercise of learning thing, new things, and meeting new people, and learning you know, what makes them tick, and what, from a musical standpoint, what, what people write, and how, how, how to kind of help with that. So I'd say just don't be afraid to ask the questions that you don't know, and um, uh, don't be afraid to admit that you don't know something. So we've, we've covered a ton over the last two hours. Is there anything we missed that you just has, has, have to share, just has to be shared to our listeners? Anything that has to be said? Mm, I don't know. I, I think we've covered quite a lot. I can't think of anything in, in particular. Um, yeah. I Perfect. Think just, just take notes, I think, is when, 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 whenever I'm uncertain about something, I take notes. I don't always go back and read them, but, but yeah, take notes. They're there. They're there if you need them. So where, where can our, our listeners find you online? So you mentioned makemusicmatter.org uh, if they want to mm-hmm. support the charity. And then mm-hmm. if someone wants to reach out to you and say, hey, you know, love loved the interview on the podcast, or I'm a big fan of this album, or they want to work with you, is there a website for you or on Instagram? Yep. Where, where do they go? DavidBotchel.com is the website. So info at DavidBotchel.com. Uh, or there's a, there's, there's, you can reach it through, uh, there's a, a contact button on the website. I'm on Instagram. I'm on um, my uh, David Bottrell official Facebook uh, business page is up there. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't generally use Twitter that much other than for complaining about hockey. Um, but uh, that's the, the right way to use it. Though. Yeah. Com- complaining about the Leafs. <laughs> Although they won last night, they did a great job last night. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, I am on Instagram, David Botchel Official as well. 
Um, so you can, I generally try to redirect people through to the website because it's got a form to fill out with, you know, places to put your music. If you're interested in working with me, you put your music on, um, uh, you know, say what you want, you know, what you're looking for, that kind of thing. So davidbottrell.com and, you know, David Bottrell official Instagram, Facebook. Awesome. So David, I wanted to take a second to, to really thank you for your time. Again, you were on my Mount Rushmore of guests that I would like to have on. Uh, it's such an honor to sit down with you as a huge music fan, as a, someone with a background in, in audio engineering, you know, your, your career is, is, you know, what is possible out there that can inspire people. And, you know, if you didn't make all the albums you made, my life would be a lot different. I would be listening to MC Hammer and, and Vanilla Ice and Backstreet Boys. So uh, you, you've created the soundtrack to my We're life. We're all talented in their own right. They are. I know. I know. But I'm, I'm making a point here. You know what I'm saying? Sure, I get so you. so I, I really wanted to thank you. I know you're a busy man and it means the world to me. So thank you so much. You're very welcome, Joel. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. To our listeners, to our David Bottrell fans, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and I'd love to hear from you guys. My goal is to grow this podcast organically where you're giving me feedback on topics you'd like me to cover and guests you'd like me to interview. You can reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Joel Martin Mastery. Joel is J-O-E-L and on Twitter at Joel Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message and I'll see you on the next episode.